Psalm 113 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth, who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. The, the Psalms are, are full of these kinds of statements, these declarations of who God is and the way that God shows his love and care for his people. And, and that's what we love about these kinds of scriptures. They are a declaration of who God is, and it speaks specifically to how unique our God is in this world. Who is like the Lord our God? The answer, there is no one. There is no God like him. And these, these psalms, they, they tell the truth that God is not only worthy of our praise because he is God, which certainly he is worthy on those grounds alone, but he is worthy of praise because of the way that he cares for his people. It, it, it's that that sets him apart from any other idea of God that man has created. And sometimes when we read through these psalms, we can't help but want to shout with the psalmist, praise the Lord. Now, why was this kind of message, I'll be with you in one moment, why was this kind of message an important one? Well, it was written at a time when the people of God were surrounded by many other gods. There were lots of choices for who they could worship. And in fact, the Hebrew faith was unique because they were monotheistic. They had one God that did everything. A lot of other cultures had multiple gods that did one specific thing. There was a god of fertility. There was a god of the harvest. There was a god of the sun. There was a god of the moon. All these different gods who had very specific jobs. But the Hebrew faith stood out declaring that there is one god who does it all. And there is no other god like him. And when the psalmist writes that, He's writing it again to a people who know of lots of other gods. And so that question, who is like the Lord of God or the Lord our God, draws their minds to a Baal or to an ashram or to these other things that people worshipped. And the writer is saying, all of these other things are pretenders in the face of our God. Dig a little deeper and it's easier, it's easy to see that in human history, 
there have been a lot of gods vying for the throne that God sits upon. One of the reasons God destroyed the world in Genesis chapter 6, confused the languages of people in Genesis chapter 11, and called out Abraham to be the father of his people was that humanity over and over again chose other gods. To the point that God simply became one choice on the menu. Instead of the defining God of the world. I mean, in fact, the main reason that Adam and Eve rebelled against God is because they were told that if they ate the fruit from the tree, they could be like him. Even that first Venture away from God was a movement toward replacing him with something else, proving that he was not who he said he was. And this tells us an important truth that we need to keep in our minds this morning as we journey through the book of Exodus. And that's this. Despite having a God that meets all of our needs, we often choose something else. Which is sort of weird, right? We have a God who loves, who provides, who cares, who protects, who does all of these things, and he does them really well. So why is it that humanity throughout its history has looked for another God to do those things? Why? I don't have a very good answer for you. But it does lead us to something that is true about our God, and that is humanity is on a constant quest to prove they don't need him. Constant. Throughout human history, this has been true. We see this materialize in all sorts of different ways, looking to science, for example, to prove that God is not necessary, that we don't need a creator. That all of this happens some other way. Rejecting the idea of God because he doesn't meet the standards we have set for him. I mean, sometimes people stand back and say that God is not good, as in being good. He is not good enough for them. We see this reflected uh, in this blog post that I found, uh, and this is an atheist writing about the five reasons, the five best reasons, um, that this person does not believe in God. So number one says there's no evidence. And this is what he said. It's a fact. No one has ever presented one iota of persuasive evidence that there is a God. Number two, it's illogical. If you are comfortable with a maybe, then you are welcome to it. But the existence of God has not been logically proven by anyone ever. Number three, and this is a big one, the preponderance of suffering. A God who was benevolent and loving, as we are told the Christian God is, would never create the world we live in. Believing in him requires either shutting yourself off from the carnage all around you or crafting frankly ridiculous excuses. Number four, we don't need him. Many people survive and thrive perfectly well without a God concept or religion, myself being one example. We do not rampage or lose our way 
or become outcasts. And so, while certain individuals may derive comfort from a belief in God, as is their right, this is neither a necessary nor sufficient condition for living a good life. And finally, number five, life is better without him. Life is better without God and religion encouraging you to make poor choices and validating them when you do. Maybe we want to say a collective ouch or ugh or what? It's undeniable that there is something inside of us that um, rebels against the very idea of God. Um, a part of us, and maybe not, you know, maybe you don't identify with us, but maybe we're just talking about humanity at large, a part of us that does not really want a God, and for some reason we don't want an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present being to take care of us. The very idea, as you saw reflected in some of these statements, that we need a God to many, is a ridiculous idea. Now, how do we view these kinds of statements? And if you've ever had someone say these things to you, you know, what do we do with these things? It's, a lot of times, we kind of just want to, you know, lob a grenade back at them. Well, you're stupid. <laughs> what do you know? But when I read these statements, I see in them someone who has not yet met God. And that's why they think the way they do. And in fact, they might have met people who spoke for God, who led them to some of these conclusions. It's important for us to understand this week as we look at the next section of the Exodus story that all of these things are true, that there is one God, that there are many little g gods. It's important for us to understand this because Moses returned to Egypt as the spokesperson for the one incomparable God. And his demand to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was that he let the Hebrew people go. They are the people of God, and he needs to release them under God's command. And Pharaoh's answer to this demand was simple. No. He says in Exodus 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. It's crazy how that question we saw in the psalm is turned on its head. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is this God? <clears throat> he had not heard of him. But more importantly, he had not really seen this God do anything. In fact... The Egyptians kept the Hebrews in, slave, in slavery for generations without any sign of this God. So why should Pharaoh pay attention to him now? Oh, because you walked in and told me to? Sorry, that's not how this works. 
Pharaoh himself was considered to be a god, one of many gods, but a god nonetheless. And the thing we have to understand about him is that he already had an answer to the God question. He did not need to do whatever this God, whoever this God is, whatever he had told him. And as you remember, things got worse for the Hebrew people after this encounter. They were told to make bricks without straw. The people were angry with Moses. Moses was frustrated with God. And God renewed his covenant and his promises to him, reminding Moses that he was on his side and this was all going to work as God uh, unpacked this entire situation. But we have reached the point where it is now time for God to show himself. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 7. This is, uh, I'm going to call this part one, setting the table. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. If any of you can do this party trick, please don't do it in front of me. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Now, if I've never read this story, and I'm reading it through the first time, my impression of this is that this didn't go like I thought it would. And, it, and it's for multiple reasons. It's not just one. It's not just Pharaoh, you know, ignoring God. And I'm reminded of the question when we get there to this, who is like the Lord or God? And we have to understand that God was nothing to Pharaoh until he showed himself. Because like the person we saw up there, Pharaoh has not yet met God. And he has no reason to believe in him. And we want to stand back and say, the audacity. How could he deny God? But I hope you understand that people have made this demand of God over and over and over again. Prove yourself to me. Prove to me that you're real. We want God to show himself, right? Right? Believers, we want God to show himself, to show who he is and to prove to the world around us that he's real. And the world around us, it wants God to show himself as well. But it's like a challenge. It's like a rock thrown at him. Who is this God? Where is he? What does he do? Well, prove it. So what goes down in this story? It's kind of a weird episode, you know, if we think about it. Um, it is Pharaoh, first of all, 
who demanded that Moses and Aaron perform a sign. They went before him, declared their intentions, and Pharaoh demanded basically that they prove their God is real. What can he do? Um, and this was, of course, a direct challenge to God. God had to prove himself in order for Pharaoh to listen to him. And Moses and Aaron did not as Pharaoh instructed them to do, but as God instructed them to do. They were not responding to Pharaoh's demands, but to God's instruction. God knew that this was going to happen, and it was time for Moses and Aaron to give Pharaoh a peek at who God is, to crack the window, if you will, to, to move the curtains just a little bit to see who God is. Did God foresee this demand? Yes. He knew this was coming. Did he make it happen? We have no proof of that. Perhaps he just knew humanity well enough to know that this was how it was going to go with a man who considered himself to be God. So they threw the staff down and it became a snake. And here's where the story gets extra weird because we, the readers, already knew that was going to happen. Is Pharaoh impressed? He's not. He calls his wise men, his sorcerers, and they come out, and they all have staffs too, and they throw their staffs on the ground, and what happens? They become snakes. I have a question. How did that happen? We don't know. We are given no explanation. But the result of this is that Pharaoh is not impressed by what this God has done. Now, here's something interesting. What does Pharaoh himself do in this scenario? Nothing. He does nothing. This God calls other people to come in and match what Moses and Aaron did. Now, that's kind of weird too. Wouldn't you think that the God would just do a God thing? But he doesn't. And, and, and this is important because it tells us the frame, you know, the, 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 the glasses through which Pharaoh is viewing this situation. This whole thing of turning a staff into a snake, which is pretty extraordinary to us, to him is, he's got servants that do that, you see. So if, if you're trying to show him that your God is powerful, well, that's not really going to work. Did the power of the sorcerers match the power of God? No, we know that. But Pharaoh doesn't. Um, and so this moment, their duplication of the trick did enough to keep Pharaoh from being swayed. Um, and in his eyes, God was no more powerful than the people that served him. Now, there is a slight turn at the end where Aaron's snake devours the other snake. Which if I were one of the sorcerers, I would have said, I really liked that staff. Can't, I don't know where I'm going to find another one like that. 
Now, on the surface, this is a statement that what the sorcerers did does not compare, that God's snake is better. But that's a little bit of a simplistic reading for us. Um, because this moment is about more than that. It does not simply represent Aaron's ability to do a better trick than the sorcerers did. Because, you know, when we think about it that way, it's almost like God and Pharaoh are playing a game. Like trying to one-up each other. And I have just, you need to keep this in mind. God does not play games trying to one-up someone else. Why? He does not need to do that. He does not need to do that. I don't know if you've ever considered, God doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. By who he is and by his nature, he doesn't have to do that. But God chooses to engage. And in this case, he's engaging like he often does. He's engaging on behalf of his people. So what else is happening here? Well, we're going to see through the rest of the story that this swallowing of these other snakes is kind of foreshadowing to the fate of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. The only use, other use of the verb swallow, the word that's used there in Exodus, occurs in Exodus chapter 15, verse 12, where it refers to the swallowing of the Egyptians in the depths of the earth beneath the sea. It's the same word. So this gives us now a little bit of a lens to look at what's happening in this chapter. Foreshadowing is happening. Now, does Pharaoh or his servants or anyone else know that this is foreshadowing? No, they don't know what's going to come. Really, Moses doesn't either. But when we see this, we can say, you know, hey, this kind of looks like that. And the results from God stretching out his hand is kind of like what Aaron did with the staff. Remember that Moses is like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron is like Moses' prophet reaching out to the people. So all of this is a message, oddly enough, that none of them can really understand about who God is within this scenario. Which takes us to part two. This isn't over. Let's look at verses 14 through 19. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he, as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord said. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt. 
even in vessels of wood and stone. It is creepy, whoever said that. It is creepy. Something for us to ponder. To this point, who has been controlling the interactions between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh? For the most part, Pharaoh has, right? But we're, when we see this scripture and what God is describing, we see that Pharaoh actually doesn't get to decide the terms of these interactions. He thinks he is dictating the terms, but he's really not. And, you know, yes, they must go to him. They must prove to Pharaoh who God is. And first they went with a declaration. They were sent away. They went with the staff, and again they were sent away. But in spite of all this, we are not to be fooled. And something that God says in that passage is important. And we need to remember that God did not lose that first challenge. He didn't. In fact, God knew how all of that was going to go down. And the way that plays out, it sets up everything we just read right there. God recognized that Pharaoh was not ready to learn about who he is. And why does God know that? Well, because we're told Pharaoh's heart was hard, unyielding. He would not accept the things that he was being told or the things they had seen. All indications are that this was his own doing at this point. Was he simply being stubborn? Perhaps. But again, he didn't have a really good reason to know that this was God yet. And if you put yourself in his shoes, which, you know, this is not a sympathy for Pharaoh sermon, but he did not care if there was another God. Why? Because he's one God amongst many. And so to him, it's almost like, hey, you need to listen to my third cousin once removed. It's some sort of like distant idea to him. He doesn't know that there is one God. And so when he's dealing with them, why does this God matter to him? This God is the God of slaves. If he were real, why were they slaves in the first place? In his mind, he has not proven himself and he never will. And at this point of our story, Pharaoh is undefeated. His powers are God's powers are matched by Pharaoh's servants. There is no reason for him to fear this God if his servants can match him. And this is something important for us to understand. When it comes to God and understanding God and knowing who God is, experience goes a long way in helping someone believe in him. It does. God is not just an intellectual exercise. Where you look at things on a page and, well, this is true and that's not true and, oh, I shouldn't do this or I should do that. Experience matters. And Pharaoh has no experience with him yet. So we see that he will not believe in this God again until God proves who he is. And Pharaoh will not let his slaves go without God forcing him to do so. So God was ready to move to the next phase. And the next phase is awful it is really truly bad and i don't know if you caught it in there 
But God says he's going to make these things happen, and then Pharaoh will know that I am God. Because God is going to do something that cannot be duplicated. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will will, uh, die, and the river will stink. I don't know about you, but I'd never caught the river will stink part before. I think I saw the blood part and just went on, you know. And it's pretty horrifying, which takes us to part three. I'm calling part three, see, I told you. Starting verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Now, this is interesting. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Okay. Now, we have to keep in mind how God said this was going to happen. It's not like, you know, Aaron clapped his hands and everything turned to blood. Instead, what was he told to do? To strike the Nile and to raise his staff amongst any body of water and it will turn to blood. Even water that was in containers would be turned to blood. Now, what were the effects of this plague? And this gives us some insight into how far gone Pharaoh kind of is when we look at the effects specifically on the Egyptian people. Number one, there was not any clean drinking water. So they literally had to go dig holes to find fresh water for them to drink. Number two, there were a bunch of dead fish. Because I don't know if you are aware of this, but blood is not the same as water. And they can't breathe through blood. So all these fish start popping up to the surface in this river of blood. Yikes. But what that also means is they can't pull food from the river. I mean, they can at first, I guess. You know, just drag a net through it and pull these bloody fish out. And Thirdly, the Nile smelled bad. Like, really bad. I have two teenage boys. It smells worse than their rooms. And the bathroom they share. It's so bad, it's like you wouldn't even consider approaching it, nevertheless drinking it. Like there's no way to get around this unless, of course, like we said, they're digging holes. And that statement, it's, it's come twice now, that blood was everywhere in Egypt. Now, this is an important first step for God to show himself because the Nile was the giver of life in Egypt. It is one of the main reasons why their country prospered 
and was able to sustain life as they knew it. It made their ground fertile, it provided food, it provided water. They never had to worry about those kinds of things. Not that farming is ever easy, but it's way easier if you have this huge river right there to you know, feed the land. And it's not difficult for us to see how that was important to them. And yet, this thing that is a part of their life that was almost like a real God to them, in one moment, with one strike of a staff, all of it was taken away. As gross as it is, the effects are devastating. Devastating. Life for the Egyptian changes like that. Now, what does this represent? Well, we don't have to really look very far for symbolism. The water of the Nile being full of blood is another foreshadowing where there will be loss of life that will occur at the Red Sea. Blood being everywhere in Egypt foreshadows the final plague where those who have blood on their doorways are spared and those who do not experience death in their families. God let everyone know what was coming if Pharaoh did not relent. And surely, we say, God showed himself here. There was no denying the power of God. Pharaoh had to believe. You know what? Actually, he didn't. That's the crazy thing. No matter what is shown to others, they still have a choice to believe in God or not. Which is one of the things that was really missed in those statements by the atheists. Is that no matter who you are, you have a choice when it comes to God. First of all, his magicians came out and it says that they duplicated the trick. Did they duplicate the trick? Not really. Number one, the Nile is already turned to blood. So it's not like they walked out to the bloody Nile and were like, boom, see, it's blood. Right? So what does it mean that they duplicated it? What did they do? Evidently, they turned some amount of water into something that was blood or looked like blood. Now, is turning a cup of water into blood the same thing as turning the Nile into blood? No, it's not. It is not the same thing. Could Pharaoh's sorcerers have turned the entire Nile into blood? No, they could not have done that. It's not the same thing. Did that matter to Pharaoh? No. So here's what's a little bit shocking about where he is. We know his heart is hard. We know it's unyielding. We know he's looking for proof. We know that he is going to be difficult to believe. But the fact of the matter is he is so far into denying this God and denying the Hebrew people that he cannot tell the difference between turning the Nile to blood and turning a cup of water to blood. He cannot tell the difference. For whatever reason, whatever it is that is driving him to this, he doesn't see it. And so now the situation is heightened. The people of Egypt are suffering. The Hebrew people are not. 
It is Pharaoh who, in contrast to God, does not care about the suffering of his people and turns his back on them. He is blinded by his lack of willingness to see the Hebrew God. And it's at this moment, and we have barely started, that we will be shocked over and over and over again by the knowledge that he could have stopped this anytime. Anytime. He could have said, that's enough. No. But even if his people suffer, he will not give in. And that remains true throughout this story. So what do we learn from this? There's a couple things. Number one, okay, not everyone has eyes to see God. Not everyone has ears to hear. But we need to remember that very intelligent and thoughtful people do not believe in God people who have put lots of time and energy that have gathered from their experiences, they choose not to believe in God. And so what I would tell you is that when someone gives you all the reasons why they don't believe in God, your job is to listen to them. It is not to argue with them. Because nothing you say or show them from the Bible that they don't believe in is going to change their mind. You know what will change their mind? An experience with God. And do you know who has the opportunity to give them that experience? You do. Number two, don't oversimplify the reasons why someone does not believe. Again, we have this expectation. Well, the Bible says this. This is true, so believe it. But we see in this story that there are a lot of reasons why someone may not believe in God. And again, experience is one of those reasons. It may take a complete reorientation for someone to really get it and for their life to be changed. And sometimes that means that person has to be broken down to the ground. That is not your job either. To break them down. to get them to the point where they'll agree with you. It is God working in their lives and then finally realizing that they need him and God being there that will reorient who they are. Number three, pointing to scripture to show someone they are wrong is not enough. That's not an experience with God. Number four, you may try really hard to give people a God experience, and you may not be successful. Moses and Aaron had signs. That didn't work. It doesn't mean, though, that you should stop trying. God is not affected when people don't believe in him. Now, hear what I mean by that. God wants people to believe in him. God has a heart for everyone to believe in him, but he does not cease to be God because someone says he isn't. You know what I'm saying? Who he is doesn't change because Pharaoh says he's not real. And lastly, do not forget ever that we are unbelievably 
blessed to be in relationship with the one and only God. So that the thing we need to remember is the question that the psalmist asked. Who is like the Lord our God? Not who is the Lord. We can answer that question. But this question is more powerful than that, you see? Who is like the Lord our God? Because the answer that rushes to our lips is no one. There is no one like the Lord our God. And I think about all the other gods, all the other gods that people have worshipped throughout time. And my heart breaks. Because they spent their time worshiping something that is not real. When the God who provides everything was simply waiting them for them to say, I see you now. Praise God that we have seen him. You know? And may our goal as we go out into the world be that others will see him also not through how good we are, but by how good he is to us. And may we leave behind us not a stink, <laughs> but a scent of life, of, of freshness, of something new and remade, of something changed by God, that others when they are around us, we'll want the same thing. Amen?